Welcome to the power of faith and the ministry of David Hathaway. Please join David as he ministers today's word. This is the story of Solomon's sacrifice. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, we read, And it came to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, that the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. The glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. These scriptures speak of two very separate experiences in the dedication of the temple. At the end of chapter 5, you have the musicians and singers who, when they begin to praise and worship, The glory of God came down in a visible form like a cloud. It so filled the temple that the priests themselves could not stand to minister. Then in chapter 7, when Solomon finished praying, literal fire came down and consumed the offering. You know the story behind this. The original desire to build the house of God was in the heart of David. David had a passion and a desire. All through the years, the Israelites had travelled with the Ark of the Covenant through the wilderness. As the Ark moved, so they moved. The Ark went before them into battle. As the Ark went into the River Jordan, the waters opened. The Ark was the covenant that God was with his people. When Israel began to build their cities, David said, The Ark of the Covenant of God must not remain in a tent. They must build a permanent place where God could dwell with his people. But God said to David that he could not build the temple because of two things. One, he'd actually sinned against God. And secondly, David was a man of war. So the task was given to his son Solomon. During the temple dedication, Solomon says in verse 7, Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Then in verse 12, And he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands. Firstly, Solomon stood before the altar in the presence of the whole congregation. Then in verse 13, For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold, an altar, and set it in the midst of the court. And on it he stood and kneeled down on his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven. Can you see what Solomon is doing? There's a very strong significance here. The altar was built for the sacrifice, but even before the sacrifice had commenced, Solomon had a second altar made and climbed up himself and stood on the very top of the altar. Before you get the normal blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of bulls and of goats and of sheep, 
Solomon presented his own body physically on the altar. It's the only time we have recorded in the scripture that a man himself, until Christ was lifted up on the cross, puts himself on the altar, his whole life dedicated. When Solomon's life is wholly and completely on the altar, he begins to kneel and pray one of the most wonderful prayers ever recorded in the Old Testament. I want you to see the significance. Here is a man whose dedication is so complete, whose surrender and consecration is so complete. You've had the praise, you've had the worship, you've had the musicians, you've had the glory, you've had visible evidence of God's presence. Now here is Solomon, on behalf of the people, giving himself, sacrificing himself, and laying his life on the altar. His sacrifice is not his death. His sacrifice is his life. Here you get the first wonderful insight into the powerhouse of prayer. The sacrifice of Solomon is the very prayer that he's making. Can't you see in the heart of Solomon such a desire, such a powerhouse beginning in prayer? He lays himself on the altar and then begins to pour out his heart to God. In verse 14, Solomon spreads out his hand towards heaven and begins to pray, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in the heaven or in the earth which keeps his covenant. Today we've got so much which we can thank the Lord for. If we were to live all our lives and receive nothing else from the Lord, we should still spend all of our lives thanking him for what he's already done. God has worked a miracle in our lives that he didn't do in the Old Testament. God has forgiven our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The greatest thing that God can do for a man or a woman is to forgive their sin, to bridge that gap, to give them peace and pardon, forgiveness, a place in the kingdom. I remember a time when I was in the communist prison when it seemed as if I was caught into heaven and it was as if I actually saw, experienced and heard the angelic choirs, the sound of the music, the song, the praise, the worship, the angels, the cherubims and seraphims, the powers and the glories of heaven are constantly worshipping the Lord. Yet, they don't even know the joy we have because of the forgiveness of sin. We should praise the Lord a hundred times, a thousand times more than the angels, because we're the redeemed. Revelation says that there will be a new song, a song of praise, a new worship when we enter heaven. It's the song of the redeemed, the song of those who've been brought out of sin. That song is a song that no angel can sing, because no angel has ever known the joy of forgiveness, that peace between God and man. In the Old Testament, they didn't know the joy of salvation through the cross. I want you to understand that in the temple Solomon built, the cloud of glory came down. The praise is there, but they never knew the joy of salvation. Sin was there, but the way of salvation was not yet made. Prepared, but not yet accomplished. Salvation in the Old Testament was by believing that the sacrifices they made were a symbol and a testimony of the Christ who was yet to come. Do you realize that a lot of the religions in the world today, including some churches, are living in an Old Testament dispensation? 
Most world religions are based on confessing sins. Oh, I've sinned, I must go and confess. Yes, the scripture does say you must confess your sin. But Christ died to take away the penalty to release us from the power of this sin. In the Old Testament, they were saved by looking forward to the cross. In the New Testament, we're saved by looking back to the cross. We're saved by faith, but faith in the work that is now finished. In the Old Testament, Solomon was saying, There is no God like unto you in heaven or in earth which keeps covenants. The testimony of God in the Old Testament was the same as Solomon's. You are a God who never fails to keep his covenant. You're a God who keeps your promises. When you make a promise, you keep it. Our praise and our worship and our glory to you is because you are a covenant-keeping God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's a covenant-keeping God who doesn't fail his people, doesn't let us down, doesn't change. We can go into the Word of God and know that he will keep every promise. You can stand in faith on the promises of the Word of God. He will never fail them. In Deuteronomy 28:12, God says, The Lord shall open unto you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain unto your land in his season, and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend unto many nations, and shall not borrow. God says he will bless the fruit of our hands. He'll bless everything that we do. In Deuteronomy 28, there are so many covenants to God's people. Everything that's written in the Bible, God will keep it. Even in difficult times, we have to remember that God keeps his covenants. When I read the story of Job, I notice he was a very wealthy man. And yet there came a time when Satan presented himself before God. And the Lord said to him, Lucifer, where have you been? He said, I've been walking up and down on the earth, and I've been looking at all the people on the earth. And I spotted one man there called Job. He only serves you because of what you've given him. You've given him a wonderful family and wife. You've given him children and all these riches. God answered back to Lucifer, You can take away from him everything, but don't touch his life. And then see if he still trusts me. Within a very short space of time, Job lost everything. His family, his possessions, his sheep, his cattle, his camels, everything. He lost a lot. Then Satan came back to the Lord and said, Look, God says, Look, I told you Job was faithful to me. He didn't just love me for what he got. Satan responded, Look, that's not enough. I want to test him even right to the point of death, even his own body. Satan was allowed to go back, this time to tempt him in his own body, to fill him with sores and sickness, till he was covered with boils right to the point of death. Yet still, he did not turn away from God. The testimony of Job is that the end of his life was far greater than the beginning. God gave him back everything that had been taken, sons and daughters. The Bible says that the daughters of Job were the fairest in the land, the most beautiful girls in all the area. He was wealthier at the end. God restored more than what was stolen. Why? Because our God is a God who keeps his promises forever. Amen. Yeah.
thank you for listening to The Power of Faith, broadcast with David Hathaway. We would love to hear from you. Contact us by visiting www.eurovision.org.uk. Also available online are a large assortment of videos, magazines and books for your growth in God. We would like to give all new subscribers to David's ministry a free gift. To receive your free gift, visit www.eurovisiontv.org. Remember, those who know their God will be strong and do exploits. Worship used by kind permission of Vinesong, www.vinesong.com.